Welcome to the mikvah.org podcast. The mikvah organization has been dedicated to the education and resources for Jewish family life since 1975-5735. You can support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. Thank you for your support and enjoy today's recording. Thank you for being a part of the Mikvah.org community, bringing our podcast into the top 1% of globally shared podcasts this year. What a tremendous achievement. In order to keep growing, we really do need your support and partnership. We are actively seeking sponsors for the upcoming podcast episode planned for the rest of this year. Please reach out to podcast at mikvah.org for sponsorship and dedication opportunities. Think birthday, celebration, yard site, loved one, loved one's merit, or Rafua Shalema. There are so many reasons why dedicating a podcast on mikvah.org will be a tremendous merit for your loved one. We thank you in advance for your consideration and support. Good evening, everybody. On behalf of Mikvah.org, I want to welcome everyone, all those who are with us live and all those listening to the replay for many weeks and months to come. Thank you everyone for joining us tonight for part two of our series on staying connected while grieving. Tonight's topic, we will address intimacy after perinatal loss. I'll start by introducing our presenter for tonight, Mrs. Devorah Entin. Devorah specializes in perinatal and reproductive mental health inclusive of infertility, pregnancy loss, and perinatal mood disorders, and associated health issues. She is an adjunct professor at Wurzweiler School of Social Work and consults nationally about compassionate bereavement and reproductive health challenges. Devorah is the clinical consultant for Yesh Tikva and Knafayim, moderating monthly support calls and maintains a group private practice focused on maternal mental health, serving New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. I want to welcome our moderator for tonight, Mrs. Sarah Morozov. Sarah is a Brooklyn-based scholar, beloved mashpia, and much sought-after counselor. She teaches and mentors at the Base Rifka Seminary in Crown Heights and is the program director at mikvah.org. In that capacity, she has created a host of online programming focusing on various aspects of family life. After teaching Kala classes for over two decades, she created the curriculum for and is the Dean of Mikvah.org's Kala Teacher Training Program. She's also a consultant to Kala teachers of all backgrounds from around the globe. Just wanna mention that all questions tonight should be put in the chat, which will only be seen by the hosts. So without further ado, Sarah and Devorah. So today's Chavdal Tevis. So I wanna just start Advar Taira, with Advar Taira, Paiskim Advar Malchus. Um, today is the yard site of the Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe. So I want to share a vart, a dvartaira from the Alter Rebbe in connection with Tvila. And this is taken from, if you want to see it on the inside, from Sidr Admer Hazokin Chaluk Beis. The mimer called Kavanas HaMikva Mehabal Shemtev. And in the new print, it's at the end of page 478. And I want to thank my father for finding this and teaching it to me. So Kibodav is also a mitzvah. So um, when a yit there are many reasons why yit 
Ayid Kataiva for the simple reason from changing from Tumatatara, the most common reason. Gairus is a, we, we tie for Gairus. Sometimes we tie for like before Yom Kippur for more tshuva and preparation for the Yontif. The Kaingado tabled five times, and each time he tabled, it was for enter a new level of connection to the Abishur and something deeper in every five levels of Tvila, every one of the five times that he tabled. The Alter Rebbe brings in the name of Balshantiv a kavana, an intention, a thought that a yid could have when they tabled. But the Balshantiv and the Alter Rebbe don't categorize that this kavana only specifies is specific to a specific Tvila circumstance. And therefore, we assume it could be applied in whatever occasion a yid tovels. We could add this intention as well, and that is when a yid tovels, we tovel in water. Water is colorless, odorless, has no shape and no form, and this is symbolic of the level of godliness or the level of abishter that's undefined. It's higher than any description. Sometimes we describe the Abishter, Hakel, Hagadol, Hagibar, different descriptions. But water of the mikvah is symbolic of the level of God that's so deep and so high, it's higher than any definition. Tvila, the word Tvila, which means to immerse, is the same word as Habitol. Bitol, except Tvila and Bitol, you change the Vav to the He or He to the Vav. Bitol means self-novocation, to be submissive, to be subservient. And in this, in this um, case, when we taivo, it means a yid being submissive or subservient to Hashem's will and total kind of being engulfed and enveloped uh, in Hashem's will. So the Balshantus says that when a yid taivos in the mikvah with the intention of being giving himself over to Hashem's will and, and knowing that Hashem embraces him totally and he's ready to accept at a certain level this um, Hashem's will in a way that is in the way of Mr. Snefesh that he doesn't even understand and higher than understanding. He has the power to activate a certain response from the Abishter. And what is that response? There are two ways within which, through two channels, through which Hashem provides for us on earth. One is called through the Seder Hishtalshulis, through the natural means, level by level, comes to us in a way of nature. And then there's a second channel, which is higher than nature. The Milo Seder Hishtalshulis is called, in the words of Chassidus, miracles, things that don't normally happen. So when a Yid, Toivos um, with the intention, Abishter, I'm just giving myself over to you completely. He activates or arouses Hashem's response that he will conduct him, the Abishter himself, Abishter will conduct himself and provide for this Jew who activated this. He'll provide for him blessings that are higher in the way of nature. And this is the power of Tvila. We have access to miracles that are higher than nature. So that is a thought because it's the Alter Rebbe's yard site. I thought I'd say something about a Kavana of Tvila based on the Alter Rebbe. And now, as it's nothing to do with this conversation, and it's not something you have to do every single time, 
It's just a thought. Sometimes you may want to use it. Sometimes you don't have to use it. It's just an optional thought. It's at the very tyrant and honor of the yard site of the Alter Rebbe, and we should all be zoichet to have the brachis of the Alter Rebbe, be'ine basar with our own eyes. And now we will have Dvora do her presentation. Um, last week, it was a conversation between Chani Krasniansky and Dvora. I want to give you the heads up that this week, it's a different style. Dvora will do her entire presentation um, all the way to the end. I may add a little bit Hashkafic insights on toivuling in such situations. And after that, we'll take the questions and answers. So my honor and pleasure to listen to Dvora. Thank you so much. I don't think it's 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 completely um, you know like independent of what we're about to talk about. Um, because if we're talking about intimacy after perinatal loss, we know that there has to be a transition from having lost a pregnancy, having had the, the state in which we were permitted to each other in a married form, and then we were no longer permitted to each other, and there has to be mikvah as a source of reconnection. We have no choice but to go to mikvah in order to reconnect with the it, back into that proper state of being between husband and wife. So while we are going to talk about the emotions of grief and loss and that process of reconnection on the physical side, after we only can get there after the attendance in the after attending to the mikvah. And I think that you know there is no question that for people who are Torah observant, knowing that one must go to the mikvah, there also is a space for opportunity within that mikvah. We cannot say it's to the exclusion of opportunity. It may be very complex. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the complexities that we hear from women who do go to the mikvah after several weeks or a month or more sometimes after they experience the loss of the baby. But we have an opportunity as well as a challenge. And what we're going to talk a little bit kind of throughout the conversation is that we want to keep our eyes and our intentions on what the future can be and ultimately should be, which is one of connecting with our spouses in a physical and intimate way. I do think it's incredibly important as well to acknowledge that we really do not want to exclusively see this as women feel this way and men feel this way. We have to discuss the fact that we will have many couples where it's reversed, where the woman is the one who's very much wants to go to mikvah so she can connect to her husband and she feels very much missing him in a very specific way. And yet the husband is the one who says, I don't know how I feel about reconnecting physically on some level, this is going to be very complicated for me. And so I don't want us to like fall into that stereotype of women always this and men always that. And so it's important because for some of you who will be listening to this podcast, you, I want you to understand that that's also an experience that needs to be honored and discussed. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Tonight, I will intersperse a little bit, um, you know, based on some of the conversations and feedback from last session. Um, while one kind of builds on the next, you can listen to this one without having listened to the previous one. But I think one of the things that I have to differentiate, which is why we divided it out, is that we are not focusing on other forms of grieving and loss experiences, the loss of a, of a, a job or challenges in a marriage. Those are experiences that we will all face at different times in our lives. Um, and yet what we're gonna talk about tonight is the more, what I would like to say is a more extreme or unexpected loss that is involving a death. And specifically the death within a pregnancy or the death with, of a child at some point after pregnancy, I've chosen to um, kind of intersperse the two because very often the features will be similar 
And yet there will be differences as well. And there's no way for us to um, kind of capture all events and experiences that people will have, but I absolutely want to um, acknowledge that different kinds of losses discussed last week, really death-oriented specific losses this week. So I'm going to share my screen. And if you'll give me one moment to make it. Okay. So we're talking tonight about intimacy after pregnancy loss, and we are going to kind of give an explanation as to why this space in particular can be very, very complicated when there has been within the intimate realm of a couple. So first, and just to set the stage in terms of how common is pregnancy loss, is that we know in approximately one in four pregnancies will end in a miscarriage or a stillbirth. Miscarriage is anything from zero to 20 weeks of conception. A, a stillbirth is for 20 weeks up to 40 weeks of loss. That's how we differentiate the two. But we know that it's not one in four women will experience a loss, although some people like to say it that way. It's actually one in four pregnancies will end in a loss. We want to also recognize that there's different kinds of pregnancy losses that all fall under a similar umbrella. We are talking about losses where we know the baby is going to die because there's some kind of intrauterine um, or in utero diagnosis of a genetic issue, where there's a twin pregnancy and one of those babies does not survive the pregnancy and the parent has to carry this baby to term or for as long as is possible, as long as that pregnancy is sustained. Um, when we, I think that pregnancy loss also is part of this anticipated outcome, like we know the baby is going to survive only as long as there is a pregnancy and once the baby is born, the baby is considered incompatible with life. That falls under the realm of a pregnancy loss. I do include as well termination of pregnancy for any reason. Um, and this might be surprising to some of you, but we absolutely have heard multiple psakalacha where women have terminated pregnancies because of a fetal anomaly or because there's a risk to the life of the mother. Um, and also an ectopic or what we'll call an, a chemical pregnancy where the numbers go up and then the numbers go down. And even if you never saw a heartbeat, that still is a pregnancy in the eyes and the heart and the life of the mother and of the father. Um, we also want to discuss the fact that this kind of loss is not the typical kind of loss experience where we will have a shiva, we will have a shloshim, we will have a grief process where others will come and try to comfort us, albeit probably not successfully most of the time, but there is definitely a space for a communal mourning that happens when we have any other kind of loss. But this kind of grief and this kind of death really is what we consider to be almost a disenfranchised grief. It's where I don't necessarily know where my place is in this world when it comes to grieving these kinds of losses. I'm gonna address it head on in this moment because some of you might say, well, if we don't have a halachic framework for grieving, maybe we shouldn't be grieving. And really our poskim across every single segment of the Torah population, of the, of the Jewish population, of our Rabbanim, Agadol Yisrael have said, no, while there may not be a, um, a recommendation or a requirement for a shiva, a shloshim, or anything of the sort, we still acknowledge that the pain of that person who is grieving is significant and needs to be respected. So oftentimes this kind of a, a grief is really quiet. It's a secret. Maybe nobody even knew I was pregnant. So part of the, the challenge of this is acknowledging that I'm holding this experience very, very privately. I may choose to tell my best friend, but I may not choose to tell my best friend. 
especially I find with women who've experienced many losses, they almost don't want to burden the people in their life with these losses because it feels like, oh, I have to go through this again. I have to help her again. And of course, we don't feel that way as the helpers, but very frequently those that are experiencing this grief feel like I don't want to put this on another person. And so they keep it very private. This kind of loss can feel very amorphous, very unclear, very like, I don't know where to put my thoughts and my feelings. But at the same time, it can feel very real and very concrete and very tangible, sometimes depending on how far along the pregnancy was. You know, so if you have a pregnancy that made it to 37, 38, 39 weeks, and she is going to birth that baby, and there will be a husband in the room with her as she gives birth, sometimes a doula, there is no question that that is going to be a very, very deep connected experience between her and her child, and hopefully between her husband and the child as well, and potentially between husband and wife too. But this is a space of a deep and painful connecting space between two people who hopefully care very much about each other and are grieving in a similar way at that time about the loss of their child. I think it's, we, we want to recognize though that the Kind of the level of attachment to pregnancy and to a fetus can vary, to a baby can vary. A woman can have a loss at six to eight weeks and say, you know, I didn't really feel very connected. It was very early. Like, I'm okay, whatever okay looks like. And yet we will have just as many women, if not more, who will say that in those six weeks, I felt pregnant. I was dreaming about this pregnancy. I, I knew this was going to be my firstborn, my baby, my, my baby that was born after all my losses. Like this was going to be the one that was going to make me um, have that baby carriage to push down the avenue. And then I lost the pregnancy. And of, I was deeply connected and now deeply set that relationship feels very disconnected um, and that I feel a tremendous loss and grief associated with that pregnancy. Also, the history of loss is going to impact very deeply in how women and men experience pregnancy loss. So if we're working from a perspective that um, people connect differently to pregnancies, people also connect to pregnancies in a different way based on what they bring to the pregnancy. So you can imagine that a woman who has um, has a history of losing her mother at a young age or a history of um, difficulty in the marriage, that pregnancy is going to feel and be experienced differently for each person. And especially if they're coming to each pregnancy with multiple losses behind them. So it's what I might think that I understand because I've had a pregnancy loss at 15 weeks. I actually cannot understand what each person's experience is because I don't live in their story. I don't live in their shoes. I don't walk their story. And therefore there's no way for me to truly understand what they're going through. And that also can feel particularly isolating as well. So these are just some of the things we're gonna to touch on a little bit of each of these as I move through the rest of the slides. We are go these are the profiles of the loss experience. When I say profiles, I'm also thinking about the themes that I hear in women that I support either in therapy or in support groups, which we've been, I've been running um, through Kinefayim uh, for many, many years, actually over probably 12 or 15 years by now. And the things that we will hear is many women will experience this deep level of body dissatisfaction, the sense of my body failed me, it was supposed to do this, and then it did that. My body, I'm unhappy and disconnected to my body. We'll come back to that. A lack of interest in pleasure. 
This is something that is very crucial when thinking about reconnecting to spouses, just reconnecting to each other. A lack of interest in pleasure is also something that we think about how it is, you know, pleasure should be part of that intimate experience between husband and wife. And yet when we're in that very deep grieving state, pleasure feels very un, um, unvalued. And also in, in some ways, there have been studies that have discussed this idea that like it's almost inappropriate for me to want to feel pleasure or to even experience pleasure. I once heard from a mother who had been sitting Shiva, was sitting Shiva for a young child that died very suddenly. And the child that died was a twin. And her brother um, was sitting at the Shiva with the parents and the parent laughed at something somebody said. The brother got very angry. He was very young. He was six or seven years old. And he got very angry at his mother. And he said, how can you be laughing? My sister died. And the mother had to explain that we have this capacity to bring, to be happy and also to be deeply in deep, deep, deep emotional pain at the same time. She had to explain that to her son. But that very instinctive perspective of, I don't, I can't laugh. I cannot feel joy. I cannot feel pleasure right now. Like that doesn't make sense when I'm grieving the loss of a child. And that's something that we're going to see show up as they begin to pot potentially reconnect in an intimate way with their husband or husband with wife. That idea of physical pleasure doesn't make sense for people who are in their deepest grief space. Um, on a very practical level, for a woman in particular, her body is a place of death. It's a place where her the baby died. Um, it's a place where she had to birth her baby or potentially with a medical procedure where she had a baby that had died inside of her. Now, most of us don't want to kind of focus on that. It's a difficult thing to consider or to think about. But ultimately, there are those women that do focus on that. And frankly, there are men that focus on that as well. And so just being alert and mindful that sometimes these are the things that people are thinking about and considering in how they're approaching this post-death, post-loss experience. So intimacy may feel selfish. Like, how could I be experiencing this when my baby just died? Um, also, grief is full of sadness. When we are sad, we're usually not in the mood of physical intimacy. And so it doesn't quite always make sense. And especially when mikvah comes along and there may feel like there's an obligation towards it and for sure a mitzvah toward it, there can still be a very deep sense of, but I'm not there emotionally. And my body as well is just not ready to reconnect in this pleasurable and connecting space. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. Um, we know that stress and despair can be part of the features of pregnancy loss. Um, there's also this conversation around the risk of pregnancy or the desire for pregnancy. And I'm going to break that down a little bit further as well. So one of the things that, that we hear very, very, and this is why it's so important that we're talking about this today, is we'll hear from grieving couples, they'll say, if I had only known that intimacy could be a complicated space within my marriage after loss, I would have been more patient, I would have been a little less um, unnerved or uncomfortable by the fact that we were having some challenges in this space. Like, I wish somebody had just told me that it's okay to struggle in that intimate space in the aftermath of a deep and, and despairing loss. And that's why I think talking about it is so crucial, finding the language with which we can really understand how people experience these losses. And then, of course, to help people figure out a way to, in the future, 
and whatever future looks like to find their way toward each other in a connecting way. And I think that we just, we want to remember that the goal of our intimate connection is not just for connection, is not just for conception, um, of course. Our goal is also in a, as a way of connecting husband and wife in not only a holy way, but also in a way that is necessary for a relationship. It is really a foundational component of a marriage and is not something that we would ever want to just say, like, you just fell away from intimate connection. And that's why while we're talking about it, we're kind of doing this dance. Um, Mrs. Marazzo and I have been like back and forth on this dance between talking about I want to help women and men walk back towards that connection and at the same time honoring just how hard walking toward each other may feel um, because of all the things that we're discussing tonight, the complexity of intimate connection can feel like it's so not available to me right now. But in this space, our conversation is going to be about honoring that and also kind of looking towards how might I begin to walk back there and keeping that goal in mind. So there is no question that there is significant risk in not talking about these issues because we really could risk just falling away from each other as a couple and not addressing these challenges from a deep compassionate space rather than from a more pathological space. Oh, there must be something in my marriage. My marriage is falling apart versus no, your marriage is grieving and your relationship, the two of you together are grieving and we got to figure out how to grieve a little bit more closely connected rather than grieving in two separate spaces. So let's talk a little bit more about the relationship to the body. So just think a bit about how the body, the pregnancy loss can impact a woman's perspective on her self-image. So I have heard openly a distress about like my body has failed me. Everything I was meant to do was to carry a pregnancy. I am a woman. I am meant to carry a baby and I can't do that. Especially when you hear multiple loss stories, that is something that really is like a kind of a rhetoric that runs through their head multiple times. I may begin to see my body as othered, like my, I'm angry at my body, almost as if my body is no longer attached to me. I am angry at my body. Some women will discuss kind of almost feeling like anything from the waist down feels emotionally off limits because I'm disappointed or disconnected or angry about how my body has acted or performed. Obviously, I understand that it is very much without outside of our control. And yet there tends to be a lot of ownership, although probably wrongly so, but a lot of ownership of like responsibility and therefore distress relating to the body. Um, and so that's something that really is, you can imagine that part of reconnection to a spouse in an intimate way, I have to be comfortable with my body to some degree. And I'm not talking about like, I don't like how fat I am. It's more like, how can I connect with my body in an intimate way to feel pleasure, right? To feel connection and to allow it without it feeling threatening to me. And that can be complicated. The other piece of this that is the kind of the loudest piece that we hear from, from um, couples is this concept of the risk of pregnancy. And frankly, we hear it from the men and the women. It's not just the women. So there is actually a fear of what if I get pregnant and I'm not ready? Or the only way through this pain is going to be to try again. Like that's the only way that's going to make me feel okay is if I get pregnant again, but I'm not so sure I'm ready emotionally. Um, we'll hear this idea of like, I could never use birth control. Like I would never go on birth control right now in the aftermath of this loss, 
especially if this was like an infertility related pregnancy, but I don't know how I would feel if I got pregnant. And so, um, and perhaps also if one spouse may want to try again, like they're like, right now, I want to get pregnant right away, because that's the only way I'm going to soothe my very hurting heart. And yet for up, the other partner or spouse might say like, I'm not like, I'm not ready to go there. I was working with a couple who she'd gone through a late loss as well as several other pregnancy losses beforehand. And she was really, really sick in pregnancy. She had probably hyperemesis and she was throwing up through most of the pregnancy and about like 36, 30, you know, 32, 33 weeks, she starts feeling a little bit better. And at 36 weeks, she loses the baby, baby dies. And she was like, I'm ready to try again. Like, here we go. She was about six weeks postpartum. And I looked at her husband and I said, and how do you feel about it? Like, how, do you feel ready to have another pregnancy and have another baby? And he looked at me with this, like, you know, a little bit of terror in his eyes. And he said to me, I know that I do, I'm okay if she wants to have another baby, but I'm not sure I'm ready for another pregnancy right now. Like I had to take care of the children that are in the family and the responsibilities of the home. And I'm exhausted. And we just went through this horrific, tragic loss. And like, I'm not sure that I'm ready to go through this again. And I think that that story is important because sometimes we think it's the woman who's not ready most of the time versus the man who's like, okay, let's just try again. Let's, it's, it's okay, we'll get through it. And I've actually heard both perspectives. So I think when we think about then resuming intimacy and intimate connection with husband and wife, we really have a problem if this could result in pregnancy and they're not ready for it. So intimate, intimate connection, intimacy, intimacy means possibility of pregnancy, it creates a level of conflict that can cause disconnection rather than connection. How do we address this? We talk and we talk and we express and we're honest. Um, and yes, sometimes they may, with rabbinic halacha guidance, may decide to wait and prevent pregnancy for a few weeks, a few months, until they're ready to engage in a way that they are both prepared for trying again. But if we don't talk about it and we don't address that fear openly and honestly, then what we end up with is everything that's in my head and nothing that's in the conversation and communication. And I might make an assumption that isn't accurate in, her, in how my spouse is feeling about trying, um, about intimacy in general, which could lead to a conception. So the things that I think about when working with couples and working with individuals who are dealing with this kind of grief, the language of grief is that I have to honor this grief, but most importantly, we need to give permission to grieve. When we give permission to grieve, even if it's been just a brief six to nine, six weeks of a loss, right? We have to give permission to grieve because then I think it allows us the communication and the conversation between husband and wife around what I am feeling. So if it's just, I'm feeling sad versus I'm feeling devastated, or I'm feeling like I'm just having a hard time keeping my head up. I'm having a hard time because I feel like I'm walking through mud. When I give myself permission to be a grieving person, in the aftermath of a pregnancy loss, there's a little bit more space for compassion and connection and communication between myself and my spouse. One of the things that I want you to understand is that there are very many different grief patterns that we're hearing, but there definitely are some that are louder than others. 
So we know that across the board, typically men and women will grieve differently. Typically women tend to actually want to talk and process, you know, we are talkers. We have that gift of speech that has been given to us in our neshamos, right? It's from our root. And we that actually shows up very much in relationships where I want to talk it through. I need to talk to you about it. And your husband might go, what is there to talk about? There's nothing more to say. But us talking things through is actually the way that our brain, our mind, our heart comes to terms with what we are facing and experiencing. And yet sometimes it will be the opposite. Sometimes the men are the ones who want to talk and the women are like, could you please stop talking, go talk to somebody else. But typically we see women tend to have a greater desire to talk about the loss. And often that emotional closeness can deteriorate when the spouse is not prepared to hear it, either because they feel helpless or because it's just too hard to listen to everything that is being presented to them on a kind of regular basis. Another grief pattern that we know is that when there is early intervention and attention to this couple, when the couple attends to each other in these deep, painful places, um, that we have the possibility of preventing long-term consequences and negative changes to the relationship. When the couple is not talking to each other or not communicating feelings and needs and emotional repair, they actually can tend to fall away. So even, especially when the, both of them are grieving the same thing, one of the things we want to challenge each other in doing is grieving together, even if it's in a parallel way, rather than exactly the same way, but that both of you are in this incredibly difficult space, but you can be in that space together rather than an isolated experience. Um, again, stereotypically, men are prepared to start to resume physical intimacy more quickly than women. And women may actually experience, again, these are from multiple studies, that women may see intimacy as inappropriate or even wrong after the loss of a child or pregnancy. Um, and some people can get angry at their, at their spouses, particularly women can get angry at the husband. Like, how could you even be thinking about such mundane matters? Like, how am I supposed to go from practically or or, or um, kind of not technically sitting Shiva, just like um, figuratively sitting Shiva to moving into the space of intimate connection with you. Like right now, my, my head, my heart, my body is so far from that experience. And how could you be there, right? But that also doesn't honor the different components of physical connection that could be incredibly valued to both husband and wife that may or may not include the complete act of intimacy. And I wanna make sure that we explore that. Um, let me continue here. So I want us to be thinking about physical touch after a loss and what is the value of this kind of loss? Again, from different studies, but I think some of this can feel intuitive to us that both men and women, which I thought was so amazing, it's not just women saying, you know, I want my husband to hold me, to feel like, to support me, to give me a hug. It's not just the women that experience that. The men experience that in their surveys. The men discuss this as well, that they felt like I desperately needed this physical connection with my spouse in the aftermath of the pain that we had been experiencing. So remember, we, by definition, by halacha, especially with the pregnancy loss, we cannot fall into each other's arms in a physical way and be held physically by our partner, by our spouses, when we are in nida. So that opportunity for physical support is missing and is delayed. Um, but there is extraordinary value of that kind of physical touch. And both husbands and wives have expressed 
how deeply comforting and supporting it felt to both partners to be hugged in that way. Again, I'm not talking about an intimate hug. I'm just talking about connection, um, that there was actual value in being able to attend to each other's needs, not just how I feel, but I wanted to give to my spouse to hug my husband, my husband to feel like he wanted to hug me, to hold the intensity of what we were both experiencing. There's something about that physical touch that can feel incredibly grounding and supportive. Um, so both men and women have expressed that that non-intimate connecting touch holds amazing value and necessity in their grief process. Um, one of the, and I love the way that this was described, that this idea of feeling of connected touch is a way that reassures them that life is going to continue and it's going to continue together. That the two of, the, of us are going to find our way not only to each other, but with each other forward. And that that was a very important space for them to grieve biaka together. Um, there can be a lot of guilt around that, like how can I be focused on each other and, and the support and comfort rather than on my sadness? And that is something that anybody that experiences a loss has to navigate either individually or together, but just acknowledging the complex space of that. When we, in order to get to that place, especially post-pregnancy loss, obviously this can be relevant to somebody who loses and experiences the death of a child. We know that during a, a sitting Shiva experience, we are limited in our physical touch halachically as well. We definitely are not going to be intimate with each other. Um, and so there is going to be for some of those spaces, but for sure for pregnancy loss, there is going to be a time where I'm going to be going to the mikvah. And we have to respect the perspective that going to the mikvah can feel very, very complicated. And complicated to me means like, how can you ask that of me? Complicated can mean I want to because I desperately want to connect with my husband in a hugging and holding manner. Complicated can feel like, you know, I my mind is so utterly absorbed with what I'm dealing with at home. Maybe it's the other children in my life or my parents grieving or my or just my own emotions that mikvah feels like so far away physically and emotionally. It might be technical. I might have some delay in getting to the mikvah based on how long I've bled after a birth. All of these experiences are going to contribute to what that mikvah experience is going to be like. I may feel I am just not ready. Um, there's this challenge of the responsibility that kind of just feels out of sync with everything that's going on in life. I may feel obligated because I've always gone to the mikvah on time. Like this is something that's a value perhaps of mine and feels like, of course, I'm going to go bismano. And yet I don't know how I feel about connection on a physical level. Um, but I also know that I should. And so kind of doing that back and forth in the mind of like, I know, I want, I should, I can't, I have to, and kind of making sure that we seek guidance and support from people who we trust to help us navigate how and when and in what capacity one should go to the mikvah. Um, and do I ultimately, how can I express this to my spouse, right? If I say to my spouse, I don't wanna go, what is that conveying to my husband? It may be conveying, I'm hurting. I'm in so much pain, like the koach is going to take from me. The energy that's necessary is going to, I don't know. Or it can convey with, 
I will then feel an obligation or then you have an expectation and I don't know that I'm physically ready for that. Or it could convey to the spouse, um, if better words are used, it could convey this sadness and this, I want to, and I'm struggling. I want you and I'm struggling. Those, we have to find the language that can express without pushing the other person away. I have to know how I feel in order to communicate that to my husband or to my wife. Um, I think there is something very precious when a spouse says to the other, I'm looking forward to going to the mikvah. But that might not be available here when we are dealing with a deep, deep grief and when both partners, both husbands and wives are dealing with such tremendous sadness. I think that, you know, before I get go further, I think that this is one of those moments as well to consider what Mrs. Marazzo discussed as we open the call today of if I know that this is something that is value aligned, I want to, I know I not only should I, but I want to go not only, first of all, please speak to your Rav, speak to somebody who can give you ETSA in how and in what capacity you can go. My understanding from Mrs. Krasniansky last week, she specifically said that the Chabad way in particular is that you go even if you cannot be physically intimate at that evening for whatever reason, illness or, or pain or emotional distress, that the Chabad perspective is one of you go anyways. Not everybody holds that way. It's the way I learned when I was originally a Kala, but it is definitely something where there can be a discussion of I'm preparing to go to the mikvah, but I cannot fathom being physically intimate with my husband tonight, but I really would like to sit next to each other and just hold each other or hug each other, not in an intimate way, but in a connecting space to feel the groundedness of knowing that I am not alone. That is something, get guidance and direction from, again, from your Rav, from your Mashpia, from your Rebetzin to how that would work, but knowing that it's not black and white, it is not exclusively this, and there's a lot of flexibility there and to really seek Eitzah in that area. But if I know that it's something I want to do, then thinking about what was discussed earlier, that idea of what can I access? Is there a way for me to frame this mikvah experience in a way that provides me connection and comfort to the Kaddish Baruch Hu, right? To the Eivishter, as you say, right? That if I can connect the Kaddish Baruch Hu in a way that makes me feel perhaps there is this surrendered space that allows me to, um, to feel held in the waters of the mikvah rather than feeling like I'm drowning in the waters of the mikvah, maybe I can feel held by the waters of the mikvah. Maybe there is this connected space that feels grounding and supportive to me. Maybe not, but perhaps I know that that's an opportunity. I may choose to, to attempt to access it, and it may not yet be available for me to access emotionally, but knowing it's there can be comforting to some people, and I think that, that you kind of Figuring out how do I navigate those spaces towards connection is ultimately what a big chunk of what a big perspective of what we're discussing tonight. Um, okay, I do want to continue with the recognition that whatever challenges, remember, whatever relationship struggles were in the relationship before the loss is going to be extra highlighted now. So if there was difficulty with intimacy, if there was difficulty in the marriage, 
after a loss of any kind, especially a pregnancy loss, it doesn't mean that, okay, now we can figure out how to communicate perfectly and we're best friends, right? Whatever relationship difficulties were there before, they're going to exist in the aftermath of a loss as well. Um, and the other thing that I, I hear a little bit too often is that very, very much this concept of like family intervention or interference. So things like the spouse wants to support that's usually it's the husband wants to support the wife and the wife is being and the mother-in-law her mother is saying like like back up like I've got this I need to attend to my daughter who's very very sad rather than moving over and allowing the husband and wife to navigate these spaces together and so while of course there's room for support we need support in navigating these spaces and in kind of surviving these tremendous difficulties but being mindful, especially if you are the mother-in-law, being mindful of making sure that husband and wife are talking to each other, that he and she can connect and support each other in these losses probably better than you can as a mother or mother-in-law and making sure that space is allowed for that to happen. So when we, I do think, and I, and I feel like I've kind of interspersed this a bit, but the recognition that when we're talking about this kind of grief and loss, we know that we, while there may be differences in how we experience grief, both partners, both spouses are grieving the same thing. They're grieving the loss of this child and they're grieving the loss of the future that was imagined. Um, and so the goal is to figure how to support each other in this intensity um, that can be a very difficult time for connection, but can also bring a lot of challenges around communication and I think that ultimately the responsibility is upon both of us to continue to work towards this connection, work towards this connection, work towards this connection. And the way we get there is through communication. So how we communicate, one of the things that I think is crucial to remember is that I need to respect no without anger. Okay, so one or the other spouse says, I'm not ready, I can't. I need to respect that response from my spouse. I always need to respect no, always. Even if it feels like, but I'm obligated, but we're obligated, but it's a mitzvah, but we have a chiyo, but, 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 always no is no. How I can make that person feel safe and connected, if I can do that, that person is going to connect back with me if I am patient and respectful. I think it's crucial to re recognize that whatever may have been enjoyed intimately before might not be enjoyed now, and it may be suspended for a small period of time. So perhaps we liked this kind of intimate relationship might be different now in the aftermath of this extraordinary pain, but that doesn't mean that it's forever. It means that it's for now. So I don't want any of either husband or wife to say like, our intimate life is never going to be the same. It may actually be different and it might be better if there's strong communication, strong, safe, stable conversations between husband and wife about what they're feeling and what they are prepared to experience with each other. But patience and respect always is going to allow for that reconnection. I think sometimes there's a little bit of panic initially that like we're never going to be intimate again. And it doesn't have to feel that way. And it doesn't have to be that way because really what I want us to be thinking about, I have another um, 
all right, we'll come into it in a moment, but just kind of knowing that I want to, and I will, I'm working towards reconnecting with you intimately, but we can start with connecting touch. So touching without expectation, assuming that we are mutter at this point, post mikvah, touching without expectation of it going further. We discussed that a little bit last week with Mrs. Krasniansky, that idea of like knowing as a couple, discussing it with your das Torah, how do we connect in a physical way that may not be intimate because we don't feel prepared for that at this time. Something like a holding of the hand doesn't have to be an intimate connection. It might feel like there's some sparks, but we really, if there's communication as to what we are prepared for or not prepared for, then we can mitigate those expectations. But most importantly, we are authentically communicating. We can have gentle and connecting touch, compassionate touch, Communication is attractive, remember, and this is especially for the men, but women, when our husbands communicate to us and tell us how they're feeling, it's incredibly attractive. It connects us to them. We're feeling like we're connecting with them on, on a different kind of level. Um, listening just as much as talking is connecting. And so even if you have no answers and you have no words of wisdom for your spouse and no words of guidance or support, just being prepared to sit with each other on that couch and listen to her talk or listen to him express, that is a form of very deep and meaningful connection. So remember, connecting touch is quiet, it is respectful, it is personal, it is warm, it's equally engaging. Second, oops, let me go up one more slide. Um, and it is safe. Um, talking can be a form of very intimate connection. We can be sitting together with compassionate touch, can be connecting without anything further, and to be held both physically and emotionally is what we are trying to accomplish beyond, um, you know, what the future will hold. So for now, when you are both in this deep, painful space, we're going to redefine what intimacy feels like. We're going to keep the conversation going. How I feel today is not how I'm going to feel tomorrow. We're going to keep checking in with each other about what we, how we would like to progress toward reconnection physically. And we're going to ask permission for touch. Perhaps we didn't ask before because it was just an understanding between the two of you. I would suggest asking permission for touch is necessary in these circumstances, it's actually trauma reducing and ultimately is going to reconnect you back with each other. Again, communication is the primary goal here. The language we're looking for is one of I want, but I can't, or I want, and this is what I'm comfortable with. Both work at different parts of this grief and loss process. So remember though, that is important to acknowledge that there is a difference between to be in the mood versus wanting to be in the mood. So sometimes we, especially in the aftermath of a deep loss, we may not actually be in the mood for a very long time, but wanting to be in the mood is going, if we follow some of the recommendations from before, from the previous slides of connecting touch, then the likelihood is that we will then be able to walk back towards each other because I want to connect with you physically. I want to be in the mood and it might look and feel different than it did before. So how do we think about this in terms of like long-term? I want us to be considering the concept of benchmarks, that that is what I'm looking at as a therapist for sure about the process of change and progress. So how I feel 
in the day after my loss should be different than how I feel a month after my loss. How I am functioning should look and feel different the week after versus six weeks after. And we're looking for small incremental growth and change. But the goal is that those growth, that growth and that change and that is in the form of connecting with each other. It's not going this way, it's going this way. Um, we want to also recognize that pressuring either direction is not going to be helpful, especially when we're dealing with men who have the potential of, of um, performance anxiety, where things will not work if they're feeling that there is a pressure to perform. We really want to remove that pressure of obligation because when they're grieving deeply, it is difficult for them to perform as well, for their bodies do not react physically when they are in a deep space of loss and grief. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna, not going to go into this too much, but just the acknowledgement that when we deal with people who are going through loss after loss, then the threat feels very large, the threat of life, of the world, of everything feeling precarious and nothing feeling safe and grounding to me can be something that can also kind of work its way into the relationship and something we want to pay attention to. What does the future hold? Steps towards reconnection, that's the goal and the opportunity, that I also hold space for the grief experience now and the process that it takes in order for us to find our way towards each other in an intimate way. And that the concept of integration, that idea of this loss, this story is going to be woven into the identity of who I am and who we are as a couple. And we are going to figure out how to integrate this into who we are, but it will not it does not and will not necessarily define us as a married couple, but it does become part of who we are in our life's story. It isn't something to get over. It isn't something to forget. It is something to integrate and to potentially kind of be um, present with those experiences in a way that is authentic and honoring that experience. And um, again, walking back towards each other is the goal. Wow, Dora, that was amazing. Just absolutely Thank amazing. Thank you. Just your tone of voice is so soft, gentle, and reassuring. That alone teaches us what care and sensitivity is so necessary when discussing such a couple, even husband towards wife, if they can manage. Wow. This is wow. Just hearing you talk is a radio lesson. So thank you so much. Thank I had you. some questions that came in as you were talking. So maybe I'm going to address them. And then if there's any more questions in the chat box, we will. There's one question that somebody texted to me. So I'm going to address it to you too, for you. So we'll do it that way. Sure. So first of all, just for clarity, I mean, I thought you were clear about it, but maybe somebody misheard. While the woman is Nida, the Dini Harchaka apply completely. No touch is allowed. Correct. When... I don't know, should I call you Miss? Okay, I'm I'm a good friend of Mrs. De, Mrs. Enton, and that's why I keep talking. Then you call me Sarah, not Rabbit. <laughs> I'll have to go both ways. Um, uh, I mean Sarah. So number one, um, that grounding or that connective touch for security is for once we once we're back from the mikvah, and yes women find this difficult we have to acknowledge and we can even talk about it and i think sometimes talking about it is important that that's one area that uh, a logical explanation is difficult to find why when a woman 
is grieving over a loss or the husband is, the, the physical touch between them is not allowed. Uh, it's hard, you know, it, I, I try to find a Hasidic explanation to everything on earth surrounding mikvah. Uh, this is one, I'm stumped on this one. I mean, personally going through a, lo a loss and whatever. So I think we have to also acknowledge that that we don't just yeah. not talk about, but say there is, you know, this is one of the mitzvahs that is categorized as a chok, a chok. There is no logical explanation. And perhaps part of the grieving process can include a touch of, this whole thing sounds so bizarre. It feels so painful. And, and Dave sure knows, Dave sure knows the whole story. Like Dave sure knows more than I do. Like just that's it, but it's not allowed halachically, and it's tough. So let's acknowledge that one. And I, I want to just add one perspective mm -hmm. on that, which I, I found it makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. Maybe it will make sense to somebody else. One of the things that we know about grief work is when people try to ignore the grief or not pay attention to the grief or like to distract from the grief we find that it explodes in all different parts of their life. So women that I, that I have worked with that did not attend to the grieving experience post-loss, I just need to get pregnant again, I'm just gonna get pregnant again, got pregnant again, postpartum for the next healthy baby was a disaster. Depression, anxiety, like terrorizing nightmares, right? And I do believe, and it's clinically relevant, that it's because they never attended to grief experience. I actually see wow. the wisdom in not touching because wow. it will distract me from what I am obligated to do. I am obligated to just be sad, wow. to just grieve. And yes, while I, on a very deep level, need and want that human connection from the person who can most deeply and relevantly give it to me, perhaps Chazal understood, and of course understood, uh-uh-uh, no distraction. You need to sit in that pain alone. We will surround you. He needs to sit right next to you, but you cannot be distracted from feeling that pain for a period of time. It is not the kind of experience that we have forever. We are obligated to then reconnect, but that I do see on a psychological level, the wisdom of Chazal in saying, and I see this even in Shiva, in Shiva, you are obligated to stay right there. You cannot go. It's funny because sometimes I see people sitting Shiva with their cell phones in their hand, and it almost feels like, wait a minute, you're not supposed to have your phone on. Even though it's not Shabbos, there's an obligation not to have your phone on. But is that phone distracting you from being fully present with what you're feeling emotionally? And really being present with those feelings is actually the extraordinary wisdom of Chazal to feel deeply, because once I allow myself that permission to grieve, what comes next will be different and potentially better. That Chazal teaches us how to grieve. Wow. We just have to follow the rules. Wow, incredible, Dvoros. I learned something new today. Wow. So thanks for that. I wish I learned, I heard about it when I, when I would have loved to hear about it. Um, another, another explanation, okay, during our Vegas, during Shiva, how much touch is allowed or even perhaps not allowed, there are various piske dinim and the laws of Shiva vary even among Chabad Rabbanim. And it's something, if you should ever need 
you should find out how many of the dinner chalka apply um, during Shiva. So I just want to clarify that. Um, ask a Shaila. Uh, I know among Chabad Rabbanim, there all are also different shittas about different opinions or different ways of looking at it. And, and that, as I want to, maybe I should backtrack. It's something I want to discuss that, um, you know, there's two types of mikvah experiences during, during uh, hard times. This particular segment today is, is about a pregnancy loss. And then it's not that you were meant to go to mikvah on a certain date. It's more like as you see your body's healing, then you know you're eventually going to have to do your hepsectire count your seven days and go to the mikvah. It's kind of a process. Then we have the other extreme, what we talked about last week, or maybe not, or maybe not enough. Like there's a major, uh, a major trauma just happened, like where something so unsettling just took place, or like whatever, and you're like, and tonight's my mikvah night, or you have a very ill relative, a, a big emergency, and you're in the ICU, and my mikvah night is is supposed to be, and that's like tefillah you know, and we hear, you know, so many. Um, stories about going to the on time and sometimes people deny themselves just to check in with themselves because they're comparing themselves to every other situation i heard this story from that one and that story from that one and she went early and she went later everyone's sharing nowadays so on that i want to sh share a few things no number one every yid every is an individual and and every circumstance is an individual and there's you and there's your husband and there's the abister in your specific circumstance and it's important to understand that the most important per people to ask yourself if I'm ready to table or not is yourself to the exclusion of all others and maybe your husband. But all the other people, all the other stories that you ever heard are irrelevant information because it, every person experiences is different. And that's why the healthiest way would be is to discuss, of course, with a sensitive Rav. Why am I saying a sensitive rov? Because ideally, every rov is knowledgeable in every single halacha from kashras to Shabbos to interest to Shemitah to marriage, everything. So it happens to be that there are different specialties. Like even if you have uh, general practitioners, you know, oh, you know, he's excellent at this. And sometimes even a general practitioner will send you to a specialist in the field because they have more experience. So there are some Rabbanim that are more experienced with dealing with loss and tragedy and the emotional aspect of it and grieving and have the education. And there's some Rabbanim that their experiences in kashras and in that those that, those type of mitzvahs or or anything or other things. It's important to reach out, you know, in your community, you'll know, or you can reach out to the various support groups, which Rav is sensitive to these situations because seeking halachic guidance will always be a win for you because the Rav, knowing that this is what the Avishter wants from you at this time, takes away the guilt. Maybe I should be, maybe I could be, maybe I should have that mysterious nefesh. Maybe I'm going to be a bigger tzaddikist or, or if your husband is not ready and you are, but doing, having the Rav. And sometimes again, is every mashpia trained in this? Not necessarily. And they may know a lot of Hasidists, but maybe they're not trained in this specific field. And we hope our current college teachers have that training and they're more sensitive to this. So maybe the support people that you choose 
to help you through this process of making you okay with your decision, because at the time when you're in a turmoil, sometimes you need that extra support, or often you do, having the right person to talk to and asking the rub, you'll be come out much more safe and secure if you can manage that, because you know you're doing right in the eyes of Hashem, either way, whether you go to the mikvah, whether you don't go to the mikvah, whether you go to the mikvah and don't have any touch, whether you go to the mikvah and some touch, whether you take it further, how further to take it, all these steps, you have that clarity. And a rub, I've seen Rabbana be so instrumental in, for example, sometimes going through a trauma or extended, like even a woman will say the technicalities of doing a hefzatara, counting the seven queen days, where am I going to be during, I'm at, at, in the ICU, where am I going to find the bathroom to do a hefzatara, shivanakim, all the badikas before sun, sunset and this and all the deadlines and preparing for mikvah. And I usually do this type of preparation. I usually go to the manicure. Now I'm not who thinks about a manicure right now to do my nails and it, all the technical details may be so overwhelming. And you think like, who, who can even, who can even like whatever till I get there. It's like, and the Rabbanim are there to help it. If you do think it's a process, you do want to go to the mikvah, they can help you make it easier. Maybe this time you could skip for your situation. You could skip a lot of the stuff and just do the bare basics just to get to the mikvah to have a touch. Or they'll you'll go to the mikvah maybe at a time that usually you can't go during this time or before hours or after hours or whatever the case is, you know? And I've seen Rabbanim be super sensitive working with individual situations to make Again, the process easier, whether making you okay to delay the tefillah or making you okay with tabling and not having relations after. Or another important factor that also in connection with another uh, question that I got is it, part of the communication would be what the husband's ability is, how much connective touch. Everybody is different. It doesn't go by age or how long the beard is or how short the beard is or however you want to call, you know, it has a lot to do with a man's physical body and his sensitivity. So if you have good communication with your husband, how much he could handle without having to worry about zero or, or any of that, that's great. Sometimes a rov could give very specific guide, guidance as where that touch should take place or how or more details. And it, it then you could have an easier conversation between each other if you're not yet comfortable already or you don't even know what the possibilities are because it's something so new to you. All of a sudden this happened and you don't even know where to start from. You, we don't get this education necessarily. And sometimes it's, it's a new topic that you haven't yet conversed with before. And maybe you're a newlywed and maybe you're married 50 years. All this it can make a difference on, on the individual situation. Maybe he doesn't know his body yet. You're barely married and he doesn't even know where to start even thinking about it and all, and all those variations. So we do encourage um, to be open and honest, reach out to someone, find out what's available, speak to a rov. And of course, that's if you already are at the level of getting there. There's going to be unfortunate times where that's totally off the radar because the emergency is so overwhelming. So it's like totally out of context. And we're not talking about that. In an emergency situation, a lot of mitzvahs just like, you know, fall by the wayside until we could start thinking about them. I don't mean chas v'shalom doing something when you need to, but like something like delaying Tvila. Another question came up. Um, about, um, okay, so I think what I spoke now answered to two, a few of the questions that came up in different scenarios. Like what if 
you're so overwhelmed. Oh, another question over here. I'm so overwhelmed with grief and you're supposed to have holy thoughts, even if it's shown bias when we're intimate and there's no way my thoughts can even get to anywhere other than my grief. And the answer to that is if you're in the middle of your grief, there's no intimacy. Like that's, that, that's how it is. Even if you're not technically in a seven days of a Vegas of, of that officially you have to shit Shiva, but if you're, if you, if your brain doesn't have right now, if you don't have right now the emotional energy to shift focus on just connection, right? It means intimacy is not even for you. What your hands and your feet are going to connect. So whoever asked that question, maybe it needs a little bit more clarification as to what it means uh, a holy thought. A connection is a beautiful holy thought, you know, that that despite our sadness and despite our stresses and despite our grieving, we have a moment that we connect and support each other. That's a beautiful holy kavana. If you can't even think about connection yet, it means you're in such a deep level of, of grief, perhaps it's not logical or practical to actually go through this whole intimacy act from beginning to end. I also just like to add to that one concept of um, the thought being one, I'm working to stay present in what is happening in this moment in time. And I know that there's definitely a strong conversation around having holy thoughts, but there's also the idea of being present with what's happening in this moment, rather than being distracted by anything that's unholy. It's more about, I am here. I'm with my husband. Right. We are together. That's that's holy. holy. That's holy of exactly. holies. That exactly. Is- so if all you're doing is focusing on being mindful and present and in your body, right. that's enough. That's more than that's enough. enough. That's more than enough. But if you can't even get to that, chances are right. it's we're not there yet. So right. th- before I say an uh, answer, I want to just give you a turn. These I, I don't know if this was a- answered yet in full or not. So the first session seemed to focus on relatively universal challenges such as about such as difficulty at work or a issue with a child. Can you address what may be different for grief in a more extreme example, literally the loss of a child or an emergency hospital stay for weeks on end? I think grief. So the reason I'm not focusing on that is that I, I, I don't want to quantify or qualify the loss and the grief experience. Right. And and I do that on purpose because I don't want there to be judgment, even internalized judgment of how I am experienced, whatever it is I'm going through. I want, you know, we have life has many challenges that will come our way. There's no way around it. Life is going to involve death. There's no way around that. If I'm privileged to live long enough and my parents are privileged to live long enough, then I will one day lose my parents. That's the natural way of the world. But I am not going to start to say, well, this loss is worse than that loss, which is worse than that loss. Now, from a halachic perspective, clearly our chazal teach us there's certain structured processes that are necessary and valuable when we are to sit shiva for certain kinds of losses. So obviously they hold a greater perhaps power in our lives. And I think we could probably acknowledge that. Um, But that is not to say that some of these other lost experiences um, or grief experiences hold extraordinary difficulty as they happen. I think that what I would encourage you to say is that whatever I am experiencing now 
I need to work my way through this. I need to get support. I need to find the people in my life who will be mechazik me. I need to find answers if I'm seeking answers. I need to find guidance if I need guidance. But ultimately, we will deal with hard things. But I need people in my pocket that will help me deal with these hard things. So the hard thing that I will deal with in terms of the future of Meva Esrim, the loss of a parent, I know who I will turn to to get the, to be mechazik me in those moments. In the, if it was infertility, I knew the people in my life and, or I found the people to find in my life who would support me through those challenges. I don't think that there's value in saying, well, this is worse than that. And you should feel this way, but not under these circumstances. Let each person navigate it in the way that is best works for them. Do I think that the process of grief in a, the death of a child is incredibly different than the process of sadness and loss when we're dealing with perhaps a child who's struggling in school because of a learning disability? I do. Do I think that the impact on the individual, could it potentially look very, very different? Of course I do. But that's not for me to then say, but you should be better by now. Like you should be okay by now. Or like, you need to like, come on, you got to pull yourself together because it's not as bad as losing a child. We should be happy when the child didn't die. They just have a learning disability. And that's what I want to be very cautious around. So guidance through Chazal as to where I find my perspective taking, but also the recognition that I have a responsibility to cope with my life. And so if it's, if I am given this, you know, chas v'shalom chalila, the terrible, devastating loss of a child, then I need to figure out how to navigate that. If what I'm coping with is chas v'shalom chalila, a child going off the derech, I need to cope and find support and connection in that. Both of them will potentially impact my bedroom or intimate experience with my spouse. And I have to navigate that as it works for me, as a Yare Shemayim, as a married woman, as a person in community with people who can potentially guide me. It's not a direct answer to the comment or the question, but I think it's crucial not to get into what we call the grief Olympics or comparative grieving. I That's what say we're the looking same to thing. avoid. It's not a formula. Somebody over here no. wants, it's not a formula. And I think everybody needs their own space and style. Mm-hmm. Like we mentioned numerous times on the slide, it's not going exactly. to You do your own thing with the right support and don't compare yourself to anyone else. The next question is the first session gave many examples where only one spouse is grieving. Can you address how to make space for intimacy and connection when you're both grieving? I think, well, I think I did. I think we did address that quite a bit, quite a way all the way through how we grieve might look different. But when we're experiencing a death or a loss, we are grieving, but potentially grieving. The grief looks different or is experienced differently, but it doesn't mean that one is grieving and one is not. Um, And so again, honoring the grief experience is really listening to how the other partner feels, right? How your spouse has experienced grief and loss. It might be in performance anxiety. It might be in, I am drinking at night. It might be in, I'm running off to shul many extra hours a night because it's easier for me to sit with my buddies in shul and learn or daven or just sit with my buddies in shul than to come home and to be in the face of such deep pain and sadness. I'm feeling that pain and sadness too, but I don't know if I can talk to you about it, my friend, right? Like that might be some of the listening, watching, noticing. 
Um, but I think that that we really talked most of the evening about grieving together versus grieving different. We grieve differently, but we can both be grieving very, very deeply. Yeah, especially if you talk about it together, like in with communication. Yeah. Um, I one one just one suggestion. Again, I'm going to go on the stereotype for a minute. So when we deal with grief, sometimes the talking about it can be very overwhelming for the man. Because again, I'm going to stereotype, men are fixers and women tend to be processors. So men are kind of sitting there going, I don't know how to make you feel better. I don't know how to fix this. The baby died. I don't know how to help you. I feel very incompetent right now as your husband. I can't talk about this. And the women are going, I just want you to listen to me. Please just listen to me. Figure this out of my head is running and running. And I just want to like make sense of well, how did this happen? And how did this tragedy happen? And how did this happen to me? And I just want you to listen. And the men are going, I can't listen because I can't fix. And that's how we end up in two spaces. So what, just one very basic recommendation, and you're going to hear me say this in pretty much any context when couples are struggling is, can you meet on the couch? Can you say, let's meet at nine o'clock? I promise 10 minutes, 10 minutes. And then we will switch the conversation to something else. I just want to know that we can sit together on the couch or the couch in the chair, depending on where you are holistically, right? Um, that I can sit together with you, eye contact connection. You do not need to say anything, just say I'm with you. And I can just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And then you can say to me, is there anything that I could do to help you, to support you, to make it better? And I'll probably say no, but by you sitting here, I feel supported, connected, and I'm feeling a little bit better, right? In 10 minutes time, it needs to stop because you have to honor that agreement. But tomorrow night, we'll meet back up here at, at nine o'clock for 10 minutes and we will talk about our feelings. And this way it becomes a tolerable expectation. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do and I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. And I can do that. I can do 10 minutes because beyond that, it feels very much like I am a failure as a spouse. I have nothing to help make you feel better. Why do you torture me for 30 minutes to listen to you cry? Right. Here's another question. What if one sure. is what, what if one is grieving and not the other, as in Hasrashom, the loss of a parent? Sure. And that I think again, I think all of these conversations still apply, right? So the loss of a parent, obviously the child is going to be in the most acute level of grief. And I need a lot more of the supportive, connecting, compassionate relationship from the partner to be patient to be tolerant, to be respectful, to know that how that person will move my way back to me is actually gonna be dependent on how I treat them, right? Without pressure, let me tell you, we're talking specifically about the intimate space, right? So if I remove pressure or that feeling of obligation or but you have to's, they will work and continue to be supportive and compassionate and connecting, they will come back to me. We will find our way back to each other. Um, but it all comes down to communication and connection and ultimately relationship. So I, I just want to add uh, another thought, a hashkafic thought. And, and I hear this a lot. So that's why I want to stress this again. That, and I've said this in the past, but it, it applies now. It's Torah, Torah forever. But it is a thought that may be helpful to some in this conversation. And that is that the Abishter, we call the Abishter Nimna Ais. He could contain two opposites. And we have a part of the Abishter inside of us. And we also can have two opposites. 
And sometimes it's so confusing when we're jumping back and forth and which one is the right one. And both of them are, are right, Alpitaira. When we go through pain, if it's a simple pain to something very severe, so we can have two reactions. One is, is this is so painful. Oh, like it's unbearable. This is suffering. And the Eishter gives us those feelings because in halacha, we turn to Hashem. We dive into the Eishter because we can't handle it. The Eishter wants our tefillahs. The Eishter wants us to dive. And we see that throughout Torah, you know, our Rivka daven, she, whoever wanted a child, that there's, if we don't feel any pain, why would we even reach out to the Eishter, to the Kaj Baruch for, for, for salvation? So part of our, part of our uh, Baruch Hashem, our religion is, David just says, feel the pain because then you turn to me. Then it's, I, I, it, it's, it's a healthy process. Then the same Abishter tells us, Emuna, Betachain, everything is good. Um, it will be good. You know, we, we, we rely on miracles and we learn this for him and we learn, wow, if you think good, it will be good. And then it's so confusing. Like, what makes me a good Jew? And they're both Torah. And it's very normal to feel this and feel that and some of this and some of that. And sometimes when your husband feels one way, you're feeling the other. And so annoying when he's saying betachan and you're saying betachan, this is crazy. I, I hurt. Don't tell me about Abishter. I don't want to hear Hashem's name over here in this house right now or whatever, whatever words. It could be very extreme. And we know that when a woman in birth, she swears she'll never have a, a baby again. And it's acknowledged that when we're in extreme pain, whatever comes out of our mouth could be really like, almost like heresy to a certain extent. But I just want to reiterate that both are Torah and both are holy. And we need to um, acknowledge the importance of both and the ratio or how we wander from one to another is very different from person to person. And I hear someone say, oh, look, she's talking like she has such betachin. Why is she not realistic? Doesn't she see that she's suffering? Is she out of her mind? And then you have someone say, oh, she's so sad and she's so angry. Like, doesn't she have belief in the Eberster? So even husbands and wives sometimes see things differently. So I just want to acknowledge that part also, like working through that they're both, they're both holy. I want to actually finish yeah. off with any other questions that came in. No, I don't think so. I don't see any in my chat. I don't know, Dvara, you have something. Okay, so I'll wrap it up and then Dvara could closing remarks. I just want to bench every one of us and every Jewish person and every human being for that matter, that we should come very immediately to the days where there is no pain and there is no suffering and there is no loss. And it's time that our collective pain and our collective suffering and our collective loss, it's about time that the Abishur step in and we should be able to welcome Mashiach with smiles on our faces. And could you imagine the Abishur smile to every one of us? Wow, kids, you did the most amazing job that you kept your faith. You did the best that you can. I knew I could rely on you. And you know that you could rely on me. And thank you. And it should be Amen very soon. Amen. Amen. We'll close on that. Any closing remarks, Devara? No, just thank you for the opportunity to share. Okay. Thank you so much, Devara and Sarah, for taking the time to do this truly important presentation for all of us. So interesting, extremely informative.
just want to mention, I want you to keep in mind that we have many resources on our website and mikvah.org forward slash referrals, as well as many incredible podcasts at mikvah.org forward slash audio. We really encourage you to check it out and please spread the word. Of course, and we do have we do have others from Mrs. Devora Enton. Just scroll down. I don't know how it works over there with the podcast. There's so many. I can't figure out how to organize them. But there's more on the subject that could be helpful. And I, I think so. I think we've done other in the past. I don't remember the list, but others on the Yes, subject. there is there's more from Devora. Yeah, yeah. And of course, um, this class will be up the next day or two if um you know someone that um, missed it. And um yeah, coming up one of our incredible th uh, three-part series on the three mistress of the woman. We'll air the following three Wednesdays at mikvah.org forward slash audio. Thank you everyone for joining us tonight. This Thank you. Have a good night. Good night, everyone. We hope you enjoyed today's recording. Please take a moment to leave a rating or a review to help others find the podcast. We welcome you to support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. For feedback, please email podcast at mikvah.org. Have a wonderful day.